32 counties united by people. My name is Una. My name is Andrea. And this is United, United Ireland. Ireland. Every week on United Ireland, we go under the hood of issues in Ireland beyond the headlines, bringing you smart people who know what they're talking about. But before we do that, yes, listeners, it's time for the Patreon plea. Uh, if you are enjoying the content, please do think about giving us three euro per month for such content. We would be greatly appreciated, appreciative. Um, and we are already appreciative of the people who are already doing it. And to our new Patreons, welcome to the club. It's nice to have you. Um, we feel a great united front with you. This week, we... Yeah, I thought that was great, Andrea. Thank you. Um, on this episode, we're looking at the threats to British democracy and how the system is attacking itself from the inside with a raft of very dubious kind of fashy legislation uh, in the pipeline. Is a kind of British autocracy seeping in? Um, we will be joined by the editor of Open Democracy, Peter Gagan. Uh, to talk about some of the legislation that he feels is signalling some very, very dangerous signs. But first, let's go to State of the Nation. I think everybody is uh, horrified, appalled, upset um, and uh, shocked by the murder of a young woman in her early 20s, Ashling Murphy in Tullamore um, on uh, Wednesday this week when she was out for a run around four o'clock along the canal bank um, on a stretch of the bank that is named Fiona's Way after Fiona Pender. Um, and when these kind of things happen, you know... <sighs> It's all, it's just so terrible for her, for her family, for her friends, for her colleagues, uh, for her students, for the community there. Um, and I think that a lot of people will be sharing their grief and their upset um, and also their own fears around safety and how no matter what steps you take uh, that you're told to take as a woman, to ensure your own personal safety, you know, fundamentally, they don't matter. You know, it doesn't matter if you get out before dark uh, to go for a walk or a run, uh, or if in your if you're in your home or wherever you are. Uh, it's extraordinarily distressing, and I think it is also chiming with a moment that's happening in different places around. Um, attacks on women's safety uh, and the fear, <clears throat> the architecture of fear that's constructed around that. Um, so, you know, for everybody who's feeling really sad and horrified and, and maybe can't even face this, something has to change because uh, this is the fundamental of, of the the violence that is that is that is uh, perpetrated against people that keeps people fearful and scared um, and threatened, and unless there is some kind of dramatic societal approach that examines all sorts of threatening behaviour and the outcome of those, I don't know how we can keep having this conversation. Uh, it's it's very 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 distressing altogether. Um, so we might come back to that in the, in the coming weeks. 
to uh, think about how things can change. Um, but just really thinking of 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 her today and and, and the horror that uh, she endured at the end of her life. Um, I know a lot of people are calling it a random attack. You know, <clears throat> violence against women is isn't random. You know, it, it, it's all connected. And uh, when things keep happening, uh, they're not random. And when people, when women keep relaying their fears about public safety uh, or private safety, uh, that's also not random. Um, so just really kind of, I think everybody's kind of shaken by that this week. Um, the Ivy markets, which we've discussed before on this uh, podcast, are... Once again, in the news uh, with um, some some kind of discussion about a mediation that's ongoing between the person who used to uh, had the lease, Martin Keane, who's a millionaire publican, and uh, the Ivy slash Guinness crew who are trying to pull this, um, you know, thing that should be an amazing amenity for the capital out of the doldrums. Um, so we'll, we're going to go back to that in the next couple of weeks, aren't we, Andre? when it becomes clearer what's going on there? Yeah, I think there's definitely just a lot of speculation going on. And uh, Richard Shakespeare wrote out a state, or read out a statement to the councillor. So there's not very much information forthcoming. It is under uh, in mediation court. So we don't really know what's going on, but it doesn't. It It's a three way conversation that we don't really know about. So we can't really talk about. Yeah. Um, speaking of amenities, the cobblestone uh, campaign kind of rumbles on. Uh, you will, of course, remember the protest movement that uh, sprung up around the potential developments uh, that would really wreck the uh, intrinsic cultural value of the cobblestone. That um, planning permission was refused and the um, people behind that development have appealed to onboard Planola. And so there will be other kind of objections to that appeal and stuff going in. Um so hopefully, because the the uh, the rejection from the planners in Dublin City Council was really comprehensive and it did things that were quite unusual, particularly around naming the cultural importance of the cobblestone. So one would hope that that would hold up through the rest of these processes, but you never know with that little ABP. Yeah, you know me. Um also, what I would like to add to that is the fact that the Dublin is Dying Zoom call was oversubscribed and there was a big waiting room for it. Um, so people are coming together. There's a cohesive kind of public strategy forming around it and uh, people getting involved. So you do love to see it. Yes, uh, I was on that call yesterday evening, actually, and it was really, really, really good. Um, and yeah, great to see people keeping up um, the organising around that. In great news, uh, Prince Andrew is having an absolutely shit time. Um, long may that continue. Uh, he was trying to get that the case kind of thrown out of court about his allegations um, of ugh, all the gross uh, Epstein-related allegations against him because, oh, like, the law's an ass, isn't it? It's like, no, you can't sue me because this was a settlement made about something else and it kind of generally said that after that you've shut up. Um, the judge in the US says, I don't think so. And so it'll be interesting now to hopefully um, see him face the consequences of his alleged actions through a fair legal process. 
There seems to be a lot of uh, consequences being faced at the moment in Britain, which is stunning or some sort of consequence. Mm. Maybe it will fizzle out to be a puff of consequence. However, the fact that the questions are happening. But do you know what? I'm obviously referring to Boris's uh, apology. It really grinds my goat, the fact that, and I know this is, there's loads of reasons, but everything that happens in the public sphere, people dying, Grefnel, like so many things. And the thing that brings politicians down can be a wine and cheese party. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, like, and I think we're going to be talking to Peter about that later as well, like with Boris on the ropes over something so small. The thing is, it is always the small things that end political careers. It's Mm. always like these kind of micro scandals that won't go away, that are very tangible, obvious, simplistic. Um, Although I was watching some clip with a political reporter from The Mirror, I think, and she was saying that basically they keep getting, all the reporters and stuff keep getting information about like more and more and more parties that were happening and more gatherings. And it just seems that they just basically didn't abide by the, not a, like, it wasn't like they were cautiously trying to like do this, that and the other. It just seemed that they didn't fucking abide by the restrictions at all. It was just like, no, this doesn't apply to us. We're just going to keep going on having our sessions. I kind of feel like Boris and his crew didn't really want to put restrictions on. They just wanted Mm. to ride out the pandemic. So they're like, well, we don't want to put these onto the public. So we're not going to put them onto ourselves. Yeah. And there's also just no accountability and they don't give Mm. a shit. So, Mm. um, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see, like, obviously he has to go for multiple reasons, but, you know, Surely this, I mean, saw a, a, a journalist and documentary maker I know um, on Twitter being like, she's an English woman and she was just like retweeting something saying, you know, another reporter going, you know, well, you know, the outrage about this and accountability. And she's like, what? Like, not, there's no faith in politics left in the UK, in Britain for a lot of people, you know, and that that's also contributing to how things can then be like worse things can be done and worse things can be done because people are just mm. like oh they're just terrible so you just completely lose faith um but yeah we'll be talking about that in a minute but yeah and also who's next if he does get the boot yeah i really regret kind of making a prediction last year that i thought pretty patel would eventually end up as prime minister i mean i she probably won't this time around but you always just have to look when things are so obnoxious and awful you just have to look at the worst case scenario and go that's probably down the line because that's what Boris Johnson was, you know, but he's been normalized, you know, like Trump. Mm. But when he became prime minister, the prospect of him becoming prime minister was ludicrous at the time. But you always have to, when things are falling apart, you look at what is the most mad thing and go that, that will probably occur if, you know, if things are that bad. So, um, yeah, there's always cool. bigger clown. There's always a bigger clown waiting in the wings. Is the problem? What's uh, this? What's this about crashes? So, uh, developers are being given the go ahead to sidestep the inclusion of mandatory crashes in developments um, in their cool BTR developments because they don't think any families are going to live in them. So they don't. They've appealed to say we don't need crashes. So our amenities in society are 
further being stripped with all these developments and like siren that, oh, the markets want to make money and not create a, a good functioning society. But the more and more the developers are in control, the more our society is being shaped by them and and not having any amenities as part of what is being built. And it's fucking terrifying. And everybody who set points things out about we can have better developments has been like, you're objecting against housing, um, you know, and people being labeled NIMBY, NIMBYs when it's just like, no, we just want better stuff. And we're going to better stuff, stuff that was, was to a certain level and that those levels have been eroded so mm. much that we're just accepting any fucking shit. Yeah, there's a big hoo-ha going on in Dunleary uh, at the moment about developers opposing like housing size regulations. And one of the things that they're opposing is that developments, like apartment developments, have extra storage. And they're like, no, no, I'm sorry. You've done it now. We can't build. It's too expensive. (laughs) Mysteriously not that expensive to build hotels, though. (laughs) Okay, um, right, we're going to talk about British democracy under attack. So just before Christmas, Peter Gagan um, published a piece on the journalism outlet Open Democracy calling out Boris Johnson's Tory government for its various um, assaults, basically, on British democracy. He points to pieces of legislation and the process of state capture that Britain appears to be, uh, some would kindly say, sleepwalking towards. Others would say intentionally uh, going along the trajectory of. Peter has been on United Ireland before. You can listen back to his byline episode on dirty money in British politics. And since we last spoke, he became the editor-in-chief of Open Democracy, a very highly regarded journalism outlet, which you should definitely support. They have a donations button on their site. Peter is also the author of Democracy for Sale. Uh, Dark Money and Dirty Politics, and a book you should definitely buy. Um, Peter, welcome back. Thank you very much for having me, Una. Now, Peter, many people have been watching on aghast, basically, over the last, I suppose, since the Brexit campaign really started um, emerging as a possibility. Uh, kind of been watching this slide towards God knows what uh, British democracy has been experiencing. We'll go through some of the specifics you're highlighting in a minute, but overall, what general vibe prompted you to write this piece, which has been really widely shared? I think I felt, you know, I was really struck as a journalist, you know, and as as, at Open Democracy, we write about lots of different facets of, you know, kind of assault on on rights and on democracy in the UK and internationally. And I was really struck in Britain that, like, you know, lots of things were happening. We had, and we can talk about the specifics, we've got this election bill that's going through Parliament, which is going to give the government lots of control over the elections regulation. We've got this, you know, draconian migration legislation. We've got the change to the Official Secrets Act is going to make it hard to do journalism. We've got all these different chain things happening. But it felt a bit like whack-a-mole as well. Like, lots of journalists and you were writing about them, but, like, you might write an article one week about one thing, another art- week the next, another article the next week about another facet of what's happening. And it felt like there needed to be a way of putting these things together. 
like a jigsaw piece, you know, and actually trying to take a step backwards and go, which is hard to do sometimes in day-to-day journalism, take a step backwards and go, actually, what's really going on here? Like, what are the things that are really going on here? And one of the things that kind of crystallized it for me was um, about two months previously, I'd been having dinner with um, a woman called Liz David, Professor Liz David Barrett, who is uh, the head of the anti-corruption unit at Sussex University, and she is an independent advisor to the British government on standards. And we were talking about what was happening in Britain. And we were talking, this is, you know, it's not somebody given to hyperbole. We we're talking about what was happening in Britain and talking about what was happening in places like Hungary and Brazil. And we started talking about this idea of state capture. And actually, Liz wrote a piece for Open Democracy about like state capture. Like, is Britain going through state capture? And she said, like, yes, actually, there's aspects of that's what we're seeing here. And I felt like I wanted to bring a piece that was going to actually try and put all those those bits of the jigsaw together because sometimes when you're in the middle of something, it's hard to see out, it's hard to put it into context, it's hard to see what's happening within a kind of wider frame. And I think when you pull the lens back, it's actually even more worrying than when you're just up to date, when you're just kind of up to your nose on it. Mm. I guess one of the big, big issues um, that Britain has uh, is the normalisation of things that are not normal. In particular, like you talk about zooming out and providing a context for all of this stuff that's happening. But like the British media, um, particularly the the tabloid media, is so, so partisan a lot of the time and is not necessarily kind of doing the kind of zooming out that you're talking about. Um, and there's massive correlations with, you know, the the television media in the US and all that kind of stuff that people go for it is, oh, well, that's just the tabloids. That's just Fox News. That's just the Telegraph. That's just the Express or whatever. Um, and I think that um, Irish people in particular have a different lens on Britain in terms of how its democracy functions, let's say. But let's go through some of the legislation um, because it's interesting right now that like the discourse around British politics is all about like sleaze and scandal and like people getting potentially, you know, losing their jobs because they went to a party and not because they're doing all this other crazy shit. But like some of the legislation that's been progressed seems just really appalling and anti-democratic, you know, just objectively. What can you, what, what's the story with the policing bill? What are the provisions in that that seek to criminalize protest? Yeah, so just one really good example is this, is this policing bill, as you're saying, it's like, you know, which would see the potential for people to be given up to 50 weeks uh, prison sentences for, for protesting and basically uh, uh, very much on the whim of, of police as well. So it's going to basically be what we, to give you the context of that, actually, we have, and you might, listeners might know, Priti Patel is now the Home Secretary. In British politics, somebody like Priti Patel, until the Brexit referendum, would have been one of these mad backbenchers that you see on television that Irish people might see when they turn on Newsnight these kind of slightly fulminating backbench stories you might think how have they ever got there but they're never going to get near office she was like that she was incredibly you know incredibly right wing the Hangham and Flogham wing of the Tory party in the new dispensation of British politics what you've got is um, you've got people like Prishy Patel who then end up in very, very, very high office. So her, you know, she is now the Home Secretary, which means that she's she's got, you know, she's she's in charge of uh, of issues like policing. And what's really strike what's what I think that the if you look at it, it's so loosely drafted. Anybody holding even like you know a placard at a protest could end up with fifty one weeks in prison. You know, it's a maximum fine. So it's going to become a criminal offence. 
to instruct in any way major transport work. So, for example, ex Extinction Rebellion, Insulate Britain, you know, this kind of new move of environmental protest, they could all end up with almost a year in prison just for being at a protest event. This is a huge, huge seismic change, and it's really striking. We saw so many, I think we had almost, we had just over 100 Conservative MPs pro, uh, rebelled on the um, new COVID restrictions, which by Ireland standards are very minor in Britain. Not a single Conservative MP, I could be wrong on this, but I can't think of any, rebelled on the policing bill. So there's a huge mismatch between you know, this, and there's something interesting about this, this whole discourse of freedom and liberty, this kind of very American discourse of freedom and liberty, which we're hearing a lot in Britain. We've heard a lot since the Brexit referendum and in, in, in the run-up to that. I should be free. Well, you're not free to protest. You know, you're not free to go. And that's a huge, it's a, I think it's, it, it cuts in some ways to the quick of what is trying, you know, what's going on here. And what it, what's also quite striking as well is there's, there's elements of, you know, I, I think elements of pinkwashing in this bill as well. There are going to be retrospective legislation that if people have been convicted of, you know, uh, when homosexuality was illegal, of homosexual acts, it's often called, named after Alan Turing, it's often called like the Turing Law. They will now be pardoned. That won't exist. But, but at the same time, for the things that are actually happening in real time, you know, for even the kind of things of like criminalization of sex work, that's still going on. So there's a lot of mismatch within this. So I think that's what's happening in, in, in this British government in particular, has a tendency to kind of throw little crumbs of things into, um, uh, into um, like, into legislation that make it look kind of progressive or attractive while doing incredibly draconian things. The creep of um, American like freedom rhetoric and freedom playbook stuff is very, very obvious. I mean, obviously, um, British politics doesn't need to look abroad to uh, find new ways to seem fascistic. Um, and, and, you know, this is maybe this is more like a tipping point culmination of loads of other different things that have been going on, like you know, when we talk about protest, well, like, I just always think it's so appalling how people tend to forget how brutalized everybody from minors to ravers mm. to students have been like, you know, the um, anti-capitalist protesters, the, the brutalization of all of that kind of stuff, all people being rounded up and arrested and kettled and all that kind of stuff, you know, police violence is super common, you know. Um, but another kind of American-y sounding thing is discourse around voter ID um, and how we know in the US that that is used to discourage or defranchise people. What is the story with the elections bill? So the elections bill is, is in many ways probably the most worrying piece of legislation that's going through the Commons right now. And it's due for its um, it's due to have another reading on Monday on the 17th of January. And the elections bill includes one aspect of it is bringing in voter ID in, in, in Great Britain, which has existed in Northern Ireland for a long time. And it's, it's really interesting. When Boris Johnson won the 2019 general election with what he called his stonking majority, an 80-seat majority, one of the first things he talked about in uh, when he went to the Commons in his kind of Queen's speech was um, was that he was going to bring in voter ID to stop this terrible thing happening. There's only the, the last general election. There was dozens, less than dozens of cases of uh, voter impersonation. It's, re, it's a it's a it's a problem that doesn't exist. And in many ways, what the prime minister was doing was coming up with a solution for a problem that doesn't exist. Expert analysis finds this that the government's own uh, public administration, um, uh, public uh, public administration, constitution affairs committee 
they, which is majority conservative, said that this bill is a, is a disaster, is terrible. And what it's, one of the things it's going to bring in is voter ID, or it's legislation for voter ID, which we know for America um, has, you know, it has, the, the problem with voter ID is that it's making it harder for people to vote. And anything that makes people harder to vote just tends to make people not vote. That is, you know, that is writ large, that is a problem. And it does tend to disproportionately affect um, minorities. But also, there's other, there's, in some ways, Again, it's in keeping with this government. They'll come up with a headline thing that's quite like a lightning rod. Um, but actually, often the devil is really in the detail. And within the detail, the elections bill is actually some really, really worrying thing. So it gives basically the government control of the electoral commission. So the executive will have control of the elections regulator, which if you if you look at what's happening in British politics, the electoral commission is a very weak institution. I wrote about it a lot in my book. It's been asked to do a lot. It's not really fit for purpose as it stands. It needs more money. It's not supported properly. The Brexit referendum and its aftermath, what people like me reported on, the fines that were given out. Like the fine for breaking electoral law in Britain is £20,000. That's the maximum fine, you know, which is a tiny amount of money. It really is the cost of doing business. And this is a political system where you know, £100 million pounds can be spent in a general election. So a 20 grand fine is nothing. It does nothing about that. Absolutely nothing. But what it does do is give executive oversight and control of the Electoral Commission. It's an attempt to actually um, constrict what the Electoral Commission can do. It also brings in new legislation on um, on third-party campaigning, so non-party campaigning. It's going to make it harder for things like trade unions and also charities to campaign at election time. So that's going to make it more difficult for democratic participation. What it doesn't do is close lots of loopholes that let dark money get into the system. So there's plenty of loopholes, which I in particular I think have been I've been writing about a lot for the last few years, which are mainly used by the Conservative Party to get anonymous donations. Um, they're not going to be touched by this elections bill either. So it's it's a very, very worrying piece of legislation which gives the governing party, the executive, far more control over the electoral process than has ever been the case in Britain. And in Britain, you know, Britain's democracy is often run on this kind of good chaps idea that, like, you know, we're all good chaps and we wouldn't do anything that's particularly egregious. So everything's been going to be okay. And I think that's this bill shows just how broken that way of looking at the world is because it's going to allow this government and, and future governments too. It'll, you know, we don't know whatever future governments come after this to be able to do things that are really, um, yeah, really, really, um, it's going to give, yeah, it'll give this kind of opportunity and over, like, the, it'll give the executive uh, power. And we've seen in places like Hungary what happens with that. You know, we've seen it in, in Hungary where you're, once the executive control of the electoral process, they're able to do very, 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 um, very, very dodgy things very, very easy because there's nothing to stop them. Yeah, and it's a similar thing that's happening in the States, right? In different states that were, well, I mean, obviously infamously calling up uh, people in charge of things and asking to find more votes in in Georgia. or But like anything where the political party system seeks to override the, I suppose, civil society system around electoral integrity is like gigantic red flags, right? Completely. I think it's a huge, you know, if you look at like what, when you're looking to try and curb the involvement of civil society in, in politics, and what we've seen in Britain, this very way we've seen in America, and actually in places like Hungary too, is that we've seen fake grassroots civil society movements emerge, especially in the right of politics. We've seen it a lot in Britain around election time. Uh, and, and this actually, ironically, this bill won't do much to curb that, but it will curb the ability of civil society and, and, and people who don't want to be part of the party political process, which I think is a very important thing in democracy. Now, you know, I'm, we are not party political, I'm not party political. I think it's really important that you have people who are politically engaged and outside of party politics, and this will make that much more difficult. And it could 
because of the way it's drafted, because of the way it, it comes in, it means that if a general election is called at a snap, which can be done, the government can call a general election whatever it wants, spending that's taken place in the previous year will be counted towards the limit for the general election. So that means you don't know. So like, you know, charity could be doing work or could be doing political work and could find itself unable to participate in the general election because of the way it's been called. And there's no reason to do that beyond... Uh, beyond limiting non-party participation in politics and and shrinking politics into that yes no bun fight between you know red and blue which which suits I think these sort of agendas. We've heard so many horrible stories um, over the past good few years about um, the deportation of people from um, Britain who've lived there all their lives maybe, not to mention people being like rounded up in vans um, and indeed uh, EU citizens detained um, as well when they re-enter the country due to uh, a misinterpretation of like we've now protected our borders kind of brexit vibe. What is the Nationality and Borders Bill and why are you worried about that or are you? I think the nationality, so the nationality and borders bill is, again, is, I mentioned it earlier, is very, very much another example, another case point of, of, of having somebody like Priti Patel in such a, a position of power as the Home Secretary. Um, and it's, it's kind of been seen as one of the government's flagship post-Brexit bills. So it's going to, you know, it's going to put a, again, it's like this idea of after Brexit, Britain's going to get control of, of its borders and immigration policy. And, you know, in many ways, this was one of the, in many ways, it was one of the red herrings of the whole Brexit process. You know, Britain has long had control over its own immigration policy. You know, whether it's, whether that was, whatever the people's views on it, that, you know, Britain's not part of Schengen, it, it, like Ireland, it has control over its own borders and immigration policy. But it served a lot of political purposes to say that wasn't the case. Um, so what this is, what this is doing is, um, it's it's going to give ministers huge power to amend and rewrite kind of primary legislation around uh, around migration and um, immigration to Britain. It's going to like it's going to make it much. Basically, it's going to do things like you know, there's going to be people. It's going to be possible to unilaterally deprive people of citizenship in Britain, and we saw that starting to happen actually with. With ISIS, with some of the kind of what we call the ISIS brides, Samina Begin, kids from East London going, and uh, they were unilaterally stripped of their citizenship, as were the kind of the so-called like, ISIS Beatles, um, which caused huge problems. Now they are like it's caused huge um, um, judicial problems as well in terms of actually. Ironically, it's made it much harder to prosecute some of these people because they've been rendered stateless. Um, but the idea, but in some ways, that's not the point. It's not. It's not really about prosecution. It's not really about trying to get justice. It is, in many ways, about being seen to do it. It also makes it. It's going to make it much harder to appeal successfully the immigration process. There's going to be, you know, this. Um, it's going to make it much easier. Like the questioning, uh, kind of questioning detained entrance is going to be. It's going to be a feature of British life, life as well. It's going to be just much easier to, like, you know, as I say, to revoke citizenship. Um, and you're, if that happens. People aren't going to have any leave of appeal as well. And what's really striking about this is we're just a couple of years after this Windrush scandal. You know, this scandal within which all these people who had come to Britain often as, as children, as very young children, worked in Britain their whole lives, you know, lived in Britain, found themselves having their door kicked in at night and been 
dragged to an immigration centre and detained and sometimes deported completely wrongly. And when that happened, the minister at the time, Sajib Javid, set up and said, we'll never do this again. Well, what they've done is created legislation which makes this completely inevitable. Like, this will, this is guaranteed now to happen again because of the way they're bringing this legislation. It's both very draconian, but yet again, it gives the state huge powers. It gives massive powers um, to the state. Um, you know, it empowers the Home Office to make regulations about um, age assessments of asylum seekers. It gives this, the Home Office huge new powers around, like, so they can say using, like, bringing in technology to try and ascertain the, the age of people, which is not, is, is not in any way, uh, you know, it, it's not something that's, there seems to be a lot of scientific questions about how, just how exact this can be, but they're going to bring this in and that's going to be the thing now that they're going to use rather than people's documentation. So yet again, it's just this idea of like centralization of power within an executive and this, this bill is going to do a lot of that. Do you think that the real, um, not le- not kind of legacy is weird in, in contemporary terms, but the real impact, I suppose, of Brexit was not just like, um, we're leaving the EU and, you know, there's going to be queues at the ports and all that kind of shit, like the logistical stuff that we understand. But that actually, it really, really opened up the door the door for radical right-wing anti-truth uh, liars within the Tory uh, party and, of course, in, in the more, you know, the Farage sphere legitimacy. And that now it's kind of like, well, what else can we do? Because it it does feel like that even the 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 dominant strand of uh, the Conservative Party, I hate keep making these comparisons to America, but like it does feel very increasingly Tea Party like. What's really striking about Britain is that I think it's one of the differences. It's both similar and different to America when it comes to, to the kind of the like what you want. If you want to call them the you know, the libertarian right, it's probably the way to describe the time that you could ask. You could really argue to tell us about you know how libertarian are some of the bills we're talking about, which give state huge state power. Is that in America there's definitely a very large voter constituency for this? So like in some ways you see people adopting positions. You see, you know, we saw this after Capitol Hill where you had all these Republicans who said nothing for a while, and some of them actually criticized Trump and then totally fall fast. I'm so sorry, I should never have done that, and they renounced their criticism. In Britain, you almost have the opposite thing. The, sort of, the, you know, the libertarian right is, is not particularly electorally popular. If you look at GB News as a, as a culture manifestation, it's died in its ass. Like, no one's watching GB News. It has no culture. Um, we don't really have, you know, there, there isn't the same sense of, like, insurgent grassroots support. But if you look at the political party, uh, the Conservative Party and Farage's various vehicles, they are very, very, very much the right of politics. And it's, it's interesting. There was some interesting research done last year by um, this academic project called UK and Changing Europe, which is based at King's College London. And they interviewed Labour members, Labour councillors and Labour MPs, Tory members, Tory councillors and Tory MPs. And they found, unsurprisingly, that Labour members are to the left of the parliamentary party. Not massively, but quite well, actually reasonably so, and councillors kind of sit in the middle. What they found with the Tories was that the Tory MPs were far more libertarian than the members and the councillors, like far more. There's a far more kind of strain, and we, the European Research Group strain of British politics too is kind of, you know, we've seen that. So there's a kind of, and what Brexit has done, I think, has, like, it's almost unmoored 
politics from like in some ways almost from the electors as well like British politics is taking part through these very well organized and they've, they've looked at America for sure and they have a lot of American contacts but if you look at the likes of the European Research Group of Blackbench Tories which is now morphed into the COVID recovery group which is a kind of lockdown skeptic group the net zero scrutiny group which is a kind of climate action skeptic group so very much politics to the right you know well to the right, often to the conspiracy theory right, you know, very American side of politics, has almost had this kind of entryism into British politics, into the British Conservative Party, with very little buy-in, you know, beyond the kind of pages of the Telegraph, uh, the Telegraph newspaper, which does publish a lot of this sort of stuff. There is no sense, really, that there's a public around this, you know. So we ended up with this bizarre situation in Britain where, when the Omicron variant hit, the public wanted restrictions. You know, 90, 80, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90 percent of the public wanted restrictions. But nothing could be done because of this COVID recovery group of backbench Tory MPs that were pincering Boris Johnson in. And I think that's leaving British politics in a very, very worrying position. Because, you know, if you think about it, like, there's every chance that the next Tory leader after Boris Johnson, which could come sooner rather than later, will be from, will, they will have to, even if they're not from this tribe, they will have to speak to that tribe, as already is happening in America, in order to get elected. Because the Prime Minister is elected by, you know, the grassroots of the Tory party. And if you want to get in with the grassroots of the Tory party, you have to speak this language. Mm. I guess one huge difference between the UK and the US is, yes, you say the electorate doesn't have buy-in compared to the kind of cultish fandom around Trump and conspiracy and and guns and religious fundamentalism, um, what Mona El Tahawi labels the the Christian Brotherhood uh, of America, which is you know, and the mm. rise of the Confederacy and all those kind of things. So there's a massive like grassroots aspect of that and you know republican voters just like not believing things wholesale like that the election was last election was legitimate and so on but like perhaps more worrying in britain now i don't live there but like is that there appears to be widespread apathy and inaction amongst the public and i always think that like the biggest difference between what was Trump's America and is Trump's America and, you know, Johnson's Britain is that Trump's America had a very visible resistance movement. And I don't think you can say the same for Britain. That's what worries me is that people just don't seem to care about what's very, very obviously happening. Yeah, there's, I think that's true. I think there isn't the same... Um, and and I found it hard. I think as a, you know, being Irish in Britain, there's always like the insider outsider thing. You know, we know them very, we know Britain very well, and you. But but there's aspects where it does puzzle you. And I think that's really true. I think it's a very it's a very good observation. You know, we, there's like the Labour Party has not been the vehicle for that. Like you know, in some ways, I wrote that piece before Christmas because I, I was expecting the Labour Party eventually to start trying to come up with a narrative on this. You know, put these pieces together and come up with a narrative. Tell us a story. Like that's stories are you know politics is stories. You know, you expect an opposition to tell a story, whether they call it state capture or something else. You need to tell us a story about what's going on here, and you, rather than just seeing these as isolated incidents. And, and in the absence of that, I think that's been very much the way of American of British politics is that you will have an opposition party that, that tries to construct a narrative. Um, and in the absence of that, I think civil society has really struggled to come up with with one themselves. I think that's I think that's very true. I think it's felt quite piecemeal. There's been some you know there's been some uh, effective you know interventions, things like 
you know, in, in the law, people are using the law, there's been like a lot of strategic litigation, but again, it's actually felt, it hasn't always felt coherent and joined up in some way. It's felt like quite piecemeal. It's felt like it's like, right, we're going to try and attack this one area, but where's the wider, you know, where's the wider pushback of like, well, look, this is our democracy, guys. It really is under assault here. And in some ways, what we're talking in the midst of this whole Boris Johnson party gate scandal, and like, you know, I was like, on one level, it's incredible that the thing that might do for Boris Johnson isn't, you know, isn't the cronyism, isn't the corruption, isn't the flagrant rule breaking, you know, isn't giving donors access to power, isn't, you know, as we revealed an open box recently, that like three million pounds buys it buys you a knighthood in Britain, it buys you a seat in the House of Lords, you know, um, like all of that sort of stuff, like that's. Um, that, that should all, you'd expect that they are the things that would get people really riled up. And actually it is, it's, it's, you know, it's these lockdown parties that have been the thing that, you know, that have pushed people to actually galvanize and to be very, to, to be angry and to want some sort of change. And I think in some ways that's, what's kind of worrying about it because, you know, even if Johnson goes that the kind of things we're talking about, this legislation is not going to stop. It's still going to be going through the comments. It will all still happen. And so, you know, that it, if it's if it's if it's not a reject if it's a repudiation of his character rather than the type of politics and the type of world he's trying to construct, then Britain isn't probably going to change all that massively, even if he does go. Do you think that I mean a lot of people around the world who and a lot of countries, a lot of states who have been subjugated by Britain or have had, you know, the fundamentals of their nations like completely disrupted by Britain's colonialism. Um, and so they, you know, may think, well, you know, Britain was always fascistic. You know, this was actually kind of in, in contemporary terms, like all of the, all of the ingredients are there, all of the tools are there and it just takes um, the collapse of decency or like perceived decency for things to become, you know, modern fascism. Um, and I think like the same can be said for, for, for various different places, like that have that, that flavor, I suppose, in, in some ways around legacy and things like that. Like, do you think that, um, in the coming years, we're, as Britain also kind of isolates itself increasingly and kind of almost colonizes itself, um, do you think that, we're going to be looking at a state in Europe that is more has more in common with Hungary or with Poland uh, than with like France and Germany. I do worry. I think it's a really worrying time. I think it is very like you know, like it's the one you know the up, the only ups, the upside at the moment. I think is that. It feels as if the apathy of the people could go either way. You know, it could the Brexit like the Brexit halo is definitely passing. It's quite you know, you can see it from opinion pieces and not from opinion pieces, from opinion polls. Opinion pieces don't tend to, to, to tell you as much as opinion polls sometimes. Um, you can see it from opinion polls that like people are less interested now. And I think the government had hoped that they could whip up Brexit as a kind of constant war and a kind of Donald Trump you know, lock her up sort of style. I don't think that's going to work. I think the constituency for that just isn't very big. And you can see it. They're kind of rolling back on it. David Frost resigned, et cetera, et cetera. So that doesn't feel like that's going to be feasible and possible. So that's quite, you know, so that, that suggests that there's, there's some benchmark there of, of, 
of potential future decency that the public hasn't fully gone along with it. But the public, at the same time, as you say, are disengaged. And a lot of things can happen when the public are disengaged. A lot of, you know, a lot of bad stuff can happen. A lot of, like, really, you know, a lot of things can be put in place, which then even if by the time you do get engaged, it's too late. And I think that's my concern for, for Britain, is that by the time people actually do start to wake up and look around and go, actually, yeah, it's, it is too late. Change has been made. Things like, you know, whether it's, Getting rid, clamping down on judicial review, so it's going to become harder to like you know to bring judgments made by the government into court. Whether it's you know the, the nationality bill that's going to make it you know it's going to make it's 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 going to make it possible to just strip people of citizenship. It's you know it's the elections bill that's going to give the government oversight over the the electoral commission. You know it's the policing bill. It's the official secrets. All these things. You know, if by the time people wake up, these are already there, then that's a really dangerous place to be, especially, you know, that's then you are in a pretty slippery slope situation. Peter Gagan from Open Democracy, keep up the excellent work and thanks so much for joining us and scaring the shit out of us. But a lot of it, I think, broadly feels very, very unfortunately uh real <laughs> um, yeah sorry about that it's, it's, it's unfortunate <laughs> when you start talking about these things like, damn is this actually a real thing yeah it is oh can I just ask you um, before you go is there anything that you're excited about working on this year in terms of investigations or um, on open democracy itself yeah, we have a ton of great stuff coming up on Open Democracy. So we've got, you know, as well as our ongoing investigations into dark money in British politics, which is, you know, we've been very much the cutting edge of corruption around that. You know, we're doing a lot of work looking at um, how the City of London in particular facilitates global corruption. We just published a lot of pieces last week and have more to come about how the Kazakhstan elite, for example, have been able to spend hundreds of millions of looted money, frankly, buying up London property. And that's not just, you know, that's the case for elites around the world, the way the British libel courts are used for libel tourism. So there's a whole there's a whole lot of stuff that's going on there. But also we've um, a lot of great international investigations going on, especially into the backlash against women's and LGBTQI rights. You know, looking at things like the way the American Christian right and others have been galvanized around the world, forcing through legislative changes in countries, you know, in on the quiet, especially in places like Latin America and Africa, but also funding really draconian pushbacks in legislation. And that's a really big thing that's going on too. So just unfortunately, when it comes to uh, things like the rise of authoritarianism and also the crisis of climate is a big issue for us. And we're going to be a lot more on that in 2022 because, again, a lot of the same people that we've, I've, been taught, we've, I've been writing about for ages that are involved in dark money and politics have now started getting involved in climate too and pushing back against climate change actions. So, unfortunately there's plenty for us to be doing keep it up Peter thanks a million thank you very much Una. I'm intrigued Andrea about what is getting on the sea this week well Una two things for me can get in the sea this week firstly it's very frustrating that all the close contact rules are being relaxed, seemingly against science, essentially. Um, that, oh, if you are a close contact, once you wear a mask and do antigens, you don't need to, you don't need to restrict your movements anymore. Hmm, that's an interesting strategy. Um, but that's only so you can go back to work. Now, obviously, there is pressure on the health service and uh, food production lines and all those kind of things. But essentially, we're we're changing science. Of, well, we're not changing science. We're ignoring science for political reasons so people can go back to work. Meanwhile, 
There's still an 8pm curfew on cinema, theatre, pubs, restaurants, etc. It just feels very off that we'll do absolutely anything so people can get to work. But God forbid they want to see a film at eight o'clock. Yeah. I think they should just, if they want to have some carrot and stick going on, really, I feel like the risk that cinemas and theatres in particular pose when people are masked, when they're in large ventilated rooms, when they may be sitting socially distanced in the seats, when the vaccine passes are checked, all that kind of stuff. Like, can you not just do that for like an extra two hours? But if you are living with someone who is positive and you might have it, that's okay because you need to get to work. You need to get to work. Fuck off. It just, the it can just, just our value of pleasure is just in bits. And I just think they can get in the absolute sea. Um, another thing that can get in the sea was the absolutely bananas mandatory vaccine dance that went on. Trying to crack into the code of what was going on there, what was trying to be achieved for such, for a country with such high vaccination. There, there's no requirement in the world to bring in a mandatory vaccination. So why the hell was that conversation raised? And I'd love to know what game was being played. Um, it felt very, uh, what's that blondie woman from? Meryl uh, Streep, Taylor Swift. Blonde women, uh, Pamela Anderson. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had a memory. It would really help me so much in my life. Didn't you know that program with Kevin Spacey? The American president. House of Cards. Robin Wright Penn. Robin Wright. Apologies. Robin Wright. It feels very her doing something in the background. That's catching a lot of aspersions on Irish politics. Listen, if Robin Wright was running the country, I swear (laughs) to God, I would be outside the door with a sandwich board with multiple lines of praise written on it. She's just one of my faves. (laughs) Big fan of Robin Wright over you here. Little love heart eyes going on there. You know? <laughs> I do love like this. <laughs> oh, okay, just falling into a Robin Wright T-shirt. A uh, little, but okay. Um, my beating heart. I feel like one of our friends uh, reads a lot of erotic fiction. This feels like it's going like, and then she was T-shirt, and then what happened? <laughs> Yeah, we need to get our unnamed friend on uh, to give us the lowdown on her uh, lesbian erotic fiction fandom. It's truly astonishing the amount of books really? that are out there. <laughs> she sent me two books, which I haven't read. Um, they These are very much in the realm of like military um, erotic fiction. One is called, and they're all about like queer women. One is called um, Don't Ask. <laughs> I think because it's like, don't ask, don't tell or whatever. It's like a play on that. And then the sequel is called Ask Me Again. (laughs) 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 Anyway, Uh, I I haven't read them. I haven't got to them yet. I haven't quite made Book of the Week yet. No, not yet. Not yet. Okay. (laughs) Now it's time for It's Bananas. Again, here we go. By the way, can I just say that I'm absolutely here for all erotic fiction and all queer erotic fiction? You know, I'm not slagging it off. I'm here for it. Oh, there was no slagging. Who is not here for erotic fiction? Come on, it's the best. (laughs) Uh, 
it's bananas. Now, this is actually this is actually one of the most banana things uh, in a while, I think, apart from all the, the development of Dublin and all that shit. So again, our little neoliberal government terrified that a clink in the economy might happen and the supply chains might go off course but by maybe like 12 hours. Um, Hildegard Norton has brought in temporary relaxation of the EU driving time and resting time rules for haulage and the logistics sector. So obviously the rules are in place because driving big, huge trucks for long periods of time can be quite dangerous if you're a little bit tired and uh, <laughs> you're on the roads with other people. So these rules are put in place, you know, to be like, so people couldn't like drive for like 56 hours. Aha, but no, we'll, re- we'll temporarily relax those. How can the words be temporary relax this? This is like literally an attack on safety on other people on the roads um and it is just the most bananas thing that we are literally putting the safety of people in jeopardy to get our supply chains on course by a few hours like everyone is literally like i would i'd be grand waiting a couple more hours for a loaf of bread or something even though you know what i mean it's just a very bizarre decision to to rail back safety things. It goes against workers. It goes against safety. It goes at the Road Safety Authority have also supported it, which is absolutely bananas. Um, And yeah, I just think, I just, I just think it's very problematic because it's the way this shit starts. Then the pandemic ends. They're like, well, actually, that actually really cut down on our supply chain management. So we might keep that up and we'll save 50 cents a year. Fuck off. Another big win for Brexit there. Big Brexit win (laughs) with the truckers. Uh, You're dead right. Totally bananas. Now it's time for our fave bits. Go on there now. I'm excited. Go on there now. Go on there now. So um, I've been fanning in a garden for uh, a long time. Like privately and uh specifically i've been coming out with her fandom in the last few weeks of like ina garten is the is the woman we need to be what is the food show we need to be watching in january she gets it she's just a vibe uh she's also known as the countess uh, the barefoot contessa she's an absolute queen loves the cosmo a uh, bit of crack and I specifically loved her twice this week because we were talking about champagne cocktails last week and Mm -hmm. a number of people have gotten in contact with me to say that they've created said cocktails, which is delicious to hear. Have a number Um, of champagne brands got in contact with us to send us crates of champagne? No, no, no. Uh, we'll, we'll tweet about it today. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Is that how it works? Yeah. I'm on the dry till April though. So well, April guys, April, that's my key time. If you could send the champagne anyway. So, and then we were talking about champagne cocktails and next of all, I put on the tally and you know how much I love watching food network and she's making our champagne cocktails. Amazing. It was mad. But then the real reason I love her. So Reese Witherspoon came out with this thing of like this January, I am going to try and read four 
pages of a book uninterrupted, uh, drink four glasses of water, go to bed at the same time every night, and rah, rah, rah. And then Ina Garten just responds to her again, sounds good, Reese. I'm going to have a cosmopolitan every night. I'm going to get stuck in uh, to a series uh, all night and watch the whole thing. I'm going to basically have a ball. Life is too fucking short. Calm your fucking knickers. And I just love that. Uh, mm. She is not here for productivity in general, but also... That comes at the same week when Reese Witherspoon is like, hey guys, we're all going to be living in a virtual world soon. We're going to have alternative universes and we're going to have crypto and we're going to have avatars and we're going to have like uh, these passports and we're going to like live in a virtual reality. Isn't it so exciting? And everyone's literally like, Reese, you're the thing you're calling for is a dystopian world of hell. Calm your fucking knickers. You don't need any more money. You're rich enough. You don't need to be getting paid by all these crypto bros and hoes for this. A lot of celebs being uh, brought into the crypto the madness. Um, Matt you, Damon. Matt Damon. Yeah. Um, I've, I'm I'm surprised, but I've missed all of this Reese Witherspoon um, uh, It's banana town, her journey. But also this week, the first crypto billionaire came about. So all those people are like, yeah, man, you can get fucking rich. All right. But at what cost? People who want to get rich don't care about the cost. Let's no. be honest. Uh, okay. Separate to that, the living canvas, it's this 3D digital art screen um, that's on Wilton Terrace at the moment. It has uh, Where's Wilton Terrace? It is. Do you know the Maxall Garage by Baggett Street? Yes. Oh, I do know it. God, yeah, no, I do know it, yeah. Uh, so it has all this interactive art going on on it. Um, there was Aideen Barry's Oblivion. Uh, we did the nails for that. Thank you, Tropical Popical Art. Blah, blah, blah. That was the story about the harp and uh, exploring the history of that and mm. all that kind of stuff. But Alan Butler has a gorgeous exhibition as part of it. Uh, it's just really nice. Um, it wasn't working the sound on it when I was down there, but it does come with a QR code so you can completely immerse yourself in the piece. Um, and it's fab that you're just standing on the road, side of the road with loads of other people watching art. You know, I'm just happy for QR codes, um, which were yeah, so, <laughs> so derided for so long. And really, in the last couple of years, they've come into their own. I, I couldn't read a menu if it wasn't for a QR code these days. <laughs> um, yeah, so living canvas, loving that. Malibu Barbara. Uh, she's Malibu underscore, underscore Barbara on Instagram. She does the type of art that I love. It's tacky. It's neon. It's fab. It's sexy. Um, don't you know all those old school nails posters from the 80s? Yeah. Obviously, I love them. Like nails. It's like the, the what's that thing of the three circles? Venn diagram of my mind. Nails, <laughs> glamour, 80s, all of that shit. She kind of does her take on those, but she also does her own art. I just love it. You should definitely have a look. <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't very cultural. Well, actually, it fucking is cultural. Coddle. It is the best thing in the world to eat. I've eaten it for Christmas dinner. I've made it a couple of times since. It is, I'm so glad I'm not a vegetarian anymore, FYI. Um, it is so good. And the conversations I've been having have been so interesting with so many people about coddle. Like I got into a very deep dive with 
um, Fallons who are introducing coddle to their menu soon mm. about the historical uh, coddle of the liberties, whether it's white or brown. And uh, I was talking about my addition of tomatoes, whether that was controversial. Um, but I just can't get enough coddle and I can't get enough coddle chat and I can't get over how underappreciated a dish it is. And if it was in France, have I talked about this on the podcast before? I don't know. I feel like I said, but I feel like we I should do a standalone coddle bonus. We 100%, I think there should be a TV show about coddle. So we'll start with a podcast. And I think you're the one to present it. And here <laughs> oh now God, is the commissioning editor of Virgin <laughs> <laughs> Um, went to see West Side Story. Can I just say, the- I love how much you love coddle, but I do not oh. love coddle. Oh my God, Dana. I, okay, I'm going to have you over and have my coddle. Okay. Grand. It's fucking delicious. It's And people who say they don't like coddle are just hung up on the idea of coddle. But once they taste it, they're like, this is so fucking delicious. What's not to love? Think about it. If we were in France and somebody presented you with this beautiful uh, bowl of pork products that were superior and delicious, which our pork products are, and then had some lovely onions and potatoes, the greatest gift the world has ever given us, you would be delighted and you'd value it. Because there's a stigma around boiled sausages and poverty food, we overlook coddle as the true hero it is. Um, yeah, like I accept all of those. I mean, I think you're trying to radicalize me, but like, that's okay. <laughs> and I also don't eat pork. So that's an issue, but uh, right. yeah. Coddle would be shit without pork. There's going to be some it's like water, vegan coddle. Water. <laughs> um, okay. What's what are, McCartney sausages. <laughs> what are your other favorites? West Side Story, saw it at the Stella. It was brilliant. Um, really enjoyed. Lovely cinematography. Very good. Blah, blah, blah. Film. And I, the, I've said this, I've had it as my favorite maybe three times at this stage. But I just love how great Deadly Cuts is doing. It's a great Irish comedy. It was number one on Netflix in Ireland all week. It is so brilliantly written. I watched it again and I was reminded because the first time I was a bit anxious because was, it was touching too many issues that were relative to me in terms of like gentrification, things being knocked down and counsellors being like developers being crap. But then when I watched it just in the fun way, it's just brilliant. It's just really funny. It's such an Irish humour. Oh, it's just great. It's very funny. Did you watch it? Yeah, I did watch it. Yeah, I really enjoyed did it. Did you like very it? Very funny. Yeah, the script is fantastic. Really, really funny. Um, gas, like, really, like some it's, proper, some lines in it that are just absolutely amazing. Fair play. It's just, I just really, <clears throat> really love it. So, um, we love to see it. Love to see it. Uh, my fave bits. Uh, the first one is also film related. I'm generally opposed to watching like the new films, new releases on Netflix because I prefer to see them in the cinema. But obviously, if I go to the cinema, I will be arrested. Now. <laughs> this, it's, it's hard when you have to do things during the day uh, to go to the cinema before eight o'clock. Um, however, there are like loads of award buzz films on new films on Netflix at the moment. I uh, just watched The Power of the Dog, which I enjoy. Did I enjoy it? I mean, it's a good film. It's I don't really I'm not a big fan of Benedict Cumberbatch or that kind of this is a terrible generalization. You know, that kind of like kind of English actor like 
uh, Eddie Redmayne and like just these guys who are just kind of like we're posh and we're actors and you just have to love us and straight women fancy them I'm just like no however uh, The Power of the Dog Jane Campion film you know you know what I mean though oh my god Benedict Cumberbatch is so good I'm like what are you talking about <laughs> um anyway <laughs> I'm your posh and straight people fancy it yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean, though? And, you're an, and I'm an actor. Like me, okay? You know what I mean? It's that kind of, like, <laughs> kind of... Anyway, anyway. <laughs> Jane Campion's masterpiece, The Bar of the Dog. No, I, I, it's a, an interesting one. Um, not really my vibe, but I did actually kind of find it quite compelling. Uh, there's also the Paolo Sorrentino film, Hand of God. Um, there is The Lost Daughter. Which I haven't watched yet. I'm going to watch that tonight. Pfft, obsessed with Olivia Coleman. And you know what's funny, Andrea? I'm just kind of yeah. realizing this as I think it out loud and I'm probably getting to the root of the issue. I don't feel that about posh English women actors. So Interesting. I think. Interesting. <laughs> okay. Let's delve into this. I'm no psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I get it. Whatever. Um, and also on there is passing. Um, shout out Ruth Nega. And yeah, so there are actually like good, you know, the way a lot of films on Netflix that you're like, oh, I'll just watch this one thing and there'll just be this like algorithmic, you know, nonsense. Um, oh my this God. This is not them. I've never felt straighter in my life as... My, I couldn't get into my Netflix and I was watching my boyfriend's Netflix and I was like, they're all action films and they're all shit. How can it be like mine are all rom-coms? His are all action films. I was like, I feel like the straightest woman in the world. But you love action films. I don't because they're, I like funny action ones, not when people mm. get murdered and oh, like yeah, yeah. serious. Um, like, I like Fast and Furious because yeah. it's a comedy. Um, speaking of films, uh, the SAG Awards, uh, nominations are out. Shout out to Queen Katrina Balfe, shout out to Queen Ruth Naga, both nominated and also nominated for ensemble or best cast or whatever is Belfast. Fantastic year Belfast again for Irish film. Belfast is on this Sunday, the screening. I'm devastated. I'm missing it. Um, oh, I have another film that I want to discuss, um, which I saw a screener of, and it is an Irish film shot in Belfast. Um, sorry, I'm just getting the, the, the proper name. Oh, yeah. Oh, Phil. Did you see the way the Golden Globes uh, released their winners through Twitter and there was like no red carpet? That was mad, right? Uh, yes. Okay, so we're back. Um, Night Ride. <laughs> Night Ride is a film by, uh, it's directed by Stephen Fingleton. Um, Mo Dunford is the lead in it. It is a, excellent. Everybody keep an eye out for this film. It is a kind What's of a called? night ride. Night and it's ride. basically a... Is there a talking car? No. Well, no. <laughs> um, there is, it's, it's done in one shot. Um, and it's kind of about wow. a, a drug deal that's that's kind of going wrong. Uh, fantastic, beautiful direction, so stunningly lit. You know, as as you love uh, films about driving, uh, I too love uh, films about driving, <laughs> apart from Drive, which I did not love, weird. Oh, so shit. So shit, yeah. 
Um, Boring. But, but this is fantastic. So I don't know when it's being released in the cinemas. I was lucky enough to see a screener of it. It's called Night Ride. Highly, highly recommend. Um, and yeah, I think those are my fave bits. That was a great week for fave bits. It was. And now it's time for Book of the Week. Book of the Week. This week's book of the week is a new memoir uh, by Lawrence McKeown. Uh, McKeown spent 16 years in the H-Blocks. Um, he spent 70 days on hunger strike. And his um, latest memoir, Time Shadows, is a fascinating, super detailed account of that time, what prison life was like, what those protests were like. Uh, he spent well over a thousand days. Um, I mean, I think about three years uh, uh, naked in, in, um, prison cell on, on, and also on a no wash protest. Um, and it really, really brings you into the experience and culture of the H blocks at that time. Uh, and it's, it's compelling. Um, and, uh, yeah, hi- I highly recommend that it's called time shadows. This podcast is produced by Andrew, Andrew Mangan, a castaway media. Crystal clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for a soundtrack. Sarah Fox did all of our design. This tuna chicken roll is, I want you to close your eyes before we get into it. Me, specifically, okay. And our listeners. I want you to think about yourself outside. It doesn't have to be a field. It can be a garden. It can be maybe 9am after a rollover. It can be maybe like an afternoon where you've had cans and a picnic. And suddenly there's a, a dream of light like the sun just comes straight into your eyes this song suddenly comes on you put your hands in the air and suddenly you're like everything is okay i am ready to have a good time and everything is going to work out oh my god let's this go is- to ibiza now <laughs> <laughs> this is bad boys cry by mark lower i've been una malali i've been andrea horan this has been united ireland and that was British democracy is under attack. Sometimes a bad boy cries Sometimes a good girl lies to get what she wants